Before we begin, if you want to join our growing group of supporters and give $5, 10 or $20 a month to help make the show even better, you can sign up to the Harder Reports Patreon right now and get exclusive access to full unedited interviews with guests. That's the Harder Reports Patreon at patreon.com forward slash the Harder Report. And now, today's episode. Hello and welcome to the Hardy Report. My name's Edward Hardy and for today's interview I'm joined by Ben Ritz, the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Centre for Funding America's Future. Ben Ritz, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me. For those who haven't heard of the Progressive Policy Institute and the section that you're responsible for before, uh, could you tell us a bit about the organisation and what it seeks to do here, what the sort of policies it's putting together and discussing are? Sure. So the Progressive Policy Institute is a centre-left think tank here in the US. Uh, it's founded in the, the late 80s, early 90s to promote a, a radically pragmatic, as we call it, view of of policy. We want to promote um, progressive ideas, but with an eye towards pragmatism. My project, specifically the Center for Funding America's Future, focuses on fiscal policy. And so uh, we cover a wide range of tax and budget issues. And our focus is trying to promote a fiscal policy that is both sustainable in the long term and makes critical public investments in the foundation of our economy. So um, promoting uh, funding for scientific research, education, infrastructure, those sorts of things, and making sure that we have the uh, tax and spending policies that facilitate that. Progressivism is often criticized for being too willing to spend large sums of cash on large-scale policy proposals. And while those proposals and those issues might need those solutions that are being put forward, whether you're looking at the Green New Deal, Medicare for All, etc., Obviously, the financial funding side of things is a debate that is quite regularly pushed further to the side and isn't really the focus of the conversation and the approaches that are put forward. How do you approach maintaining a progressive vision, but in a market-friendly manner? Sure. I think that uh, a lot of times we have this, but we're put in this box of saying that uh, these progressive policies and fiscal responsibility are somewhat uh, contradictory, that you have to choose between um, making these investments in our economy or being uh, responsible with public money. And I view fiscal responsibility and uh, progressive economic policy not as contradictory, but as complementary. Uh, at PPI, we believe that showing that we have a plan to pay for our progressive vision and show that we can make these investments in smart, efficient ways uh, actually helps us build support and can show that progressive policies uh, actually are what's best for the economy long term. One of the key features of the Progressive Policy Institute is to seek to advance these progressive market-friendly ideas, putting forward that sort of approach that, that you're mentioning there. And you recently wrote a piece in Forbes that was titled How Deficits Could Cripple the Biden Agenda 
and how he can overcome them. So to look at that issue there, how can Joe Biden prevent his agenda from being stopped, arguably before it's even got out of the gate? So when we're thinking about the deficit, we have to really make a distinction between the short-term deficit and the long-term deficit. Uh, in the short term, we have uh, you know this massive recession and pandemic that is uh, urgently needs addressing. Uh, people are losing. You know, we have millions of people unemployed. We're trying to get control of the virus, and at the same time, interest rates are near zero. You know, they're they're lower than they've ever been. And so in the short term, the deficit really isn't a big problem. Uh, that doesn't mean, though, that some people in the political sphere, uh, particularly Republicans in Congress, who um, are, are likely to have control of the Senate, that doesn't mean that they recognize that. A lot of Republicans will uh, criticize deficit spending, even though it is, it is perfectly um, justifiable by the current economic situation. On the flip side, when we look at the long-term fiscal situation after the economy recovers, we have a, a structural deficit driven by a gap between healthcare and retirement programs uh, that, thanks to changing demographics, are growing faster than the revenue we need to finance them. And that's a gap that at some point uh, we're going to have to close. And so we believe that uh, the idea of addressing that future gap and doing short-term deficit finance stimulus uh, don't need to be in conflict. And in fact, we think that by putting in place mechanisms that we call automatic stabilizers uh, to maintain stimulus based on the state of the economy and then transition to deficit reduction in the future when the economy has recovered, that will give uh, both Biden and Republicans the cover to say, okay, we have the long-term fiscal situation uh, under control, or at the very least, even if we don't have it under control, we have a framework for getting it under control after the crisis. Now we don't need to worry about the fiscal situation in the crisis. We can spend whatever we need to to support the unemployed, support state and local governments, support small businesses. One issue mentioned there uh, and touched on for a moment was the issue that's coming down the track of the nation's aging population and the worsening structural deficit that is coming with that. Is there a solution to such a problem? So it's not 100% set in stone in the sense that uh, if we have a more progressive open immigration policy or if we uh, are able to have more pro-family policies like um, an expanded child tax credit that uh, bring younger, either younger Americans in from abroad or, you know, have more American children here, uh, that can help offset our aging uh, population and uh, maintain what we call the, the worker to retiree ratio. That's the number of workers paying in taxes into the system to support each retiree's benefits. And so there are things that we can do at the margin to address the, the aging population, but uh, it, it's still a fundamental demographic transition shift we're going through. We're not going to be able to just grow our way out of it. Uh, we are going to have to tackle it uh, from the financial side. Uh, last year, PPI, uh, Center for Funding America's Future, we put out a, uh, we call a progressive budget for equitable growth that was a comprehensive framework that showed uh, one possible path for reconciling those 
uh, our revenue system with our uh, benefit system for healthcare and retirement programs and showed that there is a way that we can uh, sustainably address these programs, make sure that we're guaranteeing retirement security for everybody, while also protecting critical public investments in future generations. And we showed that there is a path to get there. At the same time, uh, the sooner you address the problem, the easier it is. Now, obviously, we don't want to do that right now because we're in the middle of a crisis, but we don't want to wait too long after we get to the other side of it to start having those conversations. We saw how Congress initially sought to protect the country from the damaging recession that it ended up in uh, after coronavirus by providing a, a relief package. And, and you talked about the different approaches that could be taken. Do you think that approach that was taken, providing relief packages of that nature, stimulates the economy? I think what we had with the CARES Act uh, and also the, the Families First Coronavirus Response Act that came before it uh, was a very uh, aggressive, comprehensive approach to tackling the problem. We had uh, stimulus checks that went out to everybody who was making under $100,000 a year. We had very robust unemployment benefits that actually uh, not only it increased both the duration of unemployment and increased the benefit level, so that actually some people were getting even more money from unemployment than they were getting from than they lost in wages. We had robust support for uh, small businesses and, and lending programs of that nature. And so I think that the approach right out of the gate was the right one. And it, we saw, see in the economic data, we largely took care of people. Now, there were some uh, implementation problems. The state unemployment systems were not equipped to handle this, uh, the, the crushing level of benefit applications they got at the outset. State and local governments still have huge uh, revenue shortfalls for dealing with the crisis that weren't addressed. Um, and, and we're seeing that uh, the systems that we have in place to deal with these problems are not as adaptive as they should be. And so uh, while I think we did the, the right thing early on, it would benefit our economy to have these systems uh, more streamlined and updated so they can adapt to crises better in the future. Not only that, but it's also important to make sure that we have the support going on as long as the economy needs it. The, the Most of those support programs from the CARES Act uh, expired at the end of July and nothing has been done since. And while our aggressive response at the outset sort of helped carry us over, uh, we've now seen that that support has run its course the economy looks like it's starting to contract again, it would be way better if we were able to have put those programs on autopilot and said, this spending is going to continue for as long as we need it to. And then it can dial back on its own in the recession or when the recession ends, as opposed to having this arbitrary cutoff date and sort of leaving it to the political system to try to play catch up. Is that something that on a wider scale is an issue in politics where because of the cyclical nature of the political system, you've got the midterms where the House is being changed every two years. You've got the president every four years, potentially changing presidents or, or at most every eight years. And with that, you're changing the sort of approach that Congress, the White House are willing to take on these. The, the real solution to creating a more prosperous nation, as it were, where 
these cycles work effectively is to have these long-term outlooks rather than people saying, here's a six-month fix, here's a three-month fix, saying here's actually a, a four, eight, 10-year financial plan that's in stone that works with these cycles. So I think I think back to that uh, that old Churchill quote about democracy is the worst form of government except for all the others. Uh, I think that if we had... I think that the frequency of our elections isn't so much the problem, although it certainly would be better if we could shorten the, the campaign time and focus more on governing for, you know, the first year and a half uh, before the midterm. But I think it's, it's, it's a problem of, frankly, uh, human nature and, and the, the limited ability of any political system to adapt to these sort of changing circumstances. I mean, when we had uh, the pandemic hit, we did not have good, robust uh, economic data to make all of the decisions we needed to. We didn't know um, how bad the situation was going to be. Any, any political system would have struggled to tailor the right package in the middle of the crisis. And so I don't judge our lawmakers or our electoral system too harshly for that aspect of it. I think the benefit of having automatic stabilizers and programs that respond to the economy as it's developing before we get all that data in is that it can sort of take some of that human error out of it. But the other side of it is I think there is a benefit to having our elected officials uh, decide how our budgets are allocated. I think that uh, our democratic system thrives because elected officials have the ability to respond to the needs of their constituents who elected them. And part of the problem we have with our long-term fiscal situation is that we're actually crowding out that fiscal space for future policymakers and pre-programming too much of our budget uh, in stone in the future. It used to be that two out of every three dollars spent by the federal government were annually appropriated by Congress, and now it's one out of every three, and it's going down to one out of every six in the next couple decades. And so I think that we want to make sure that essentially our crisis response is quick, agile, and adaptable, and these support programs need to be responsive. But I also think we want to maintain a level of responsiveness to uh, political considerations, too. Politicians often make their decisions based on what they imagine the electorate will reward them for, and that's part of the problem that we see not just in fiscal politics, but also on a wider scale with what's happening and what they're doing and engaging in. How do politicians avoid the inevitable political backlash of being fiscally conservative during times of economic growth, cutting back public spending? How do politicians present it to the public in, in a positive light? I would point to a few things. The first is, I think one of the benefits of making these changes in a prospering economy is that the incumbent parties, incumbent politicians, tend to do better and be more popular when there's a growing economy. So I th think that just naturally when the economy is growing, they have more flexibility to make those kind of hard decisions. Uh, so it's not just economically the right time, it's also politically a good time. The second thing I would say is they should, there's a long-term focus here. I don't think that there's any reason why, especially with interest rates so low, we should be enacting sharp deficit reduction that takes effect next year. And I would be saying that even if we didn't have this pandemic and we're at 4% unemployment, 
there's a, a, a big benefit to gradually phasing in reforms because it doesn't hit uh, people too hard. They have time to adapt. Uh, and you also kind of dilute some of those uh, political pain points. The last point I would make on this is that part of it is about leveling with the American people and having an honest conversation about these trade-offs. When we frame the these hard choices in that context, and you know, we make clear, hey, you're going to have to give up some uh, some sacrifice here. But on the plus side, you and your children and your grandchildren are going to have social security benefits that you are 100 percent sure are going to be there and not just be there, but be there in the level, uh, the amount that we're telling you is so you can plan your your life and your retirement around, you know, knowing that you're going to have this this security and uh, reliability. I think that you're able to get more consensus than you are if you're just asking people to pay a price without telling them exactly what they're getting in return for it. Looking at the change that will be coming to the economy in the near future, we're obviously living in an increasingly technological world and countries have to adapt to that or risk being left behind. PPI has written about the app economy. Can you explain a little bit about what the app economy is and how that fits into the the sort of economic situation that countries like America will be facing? Yeah, so a lot of our our work at PPI, and admittedly, this is is a little bit out of the scope of my my fiscal policy work, but we focus on trying to put in place policies that help adapt our economy for the 21st century. We've seen enormous growth in uh, e-commerce and uh, industries that are based on technology since the beginning of the 21st century. And so a lot of PPI's work is focused on trying to uh, cultivate that growth, but also uh, modernize our policy to be more accommodative of that. So for example, um, part of the challenges that we're, we're thinking about is we have the gig economy where people are, are not uh, attached to their employer in the same way. And that changes some of the historical benefits that we offer, like uh, 401k plans and, and uh, payroll taxes that depend on the employer-employee relationship that uh, is, is changing for, for some parts of the economy. And so uh, our work in that area focuses on trying to have uh, accommodative policies for that growth. Speaking about uh, adaptions to the economy that can be made, what do you think is the area where we need to be looking at potential changes to the economy that we need to be preparing for in light of everything that's been going on recently? I would separate it into two categories. Uh, on the one hand, there's things that are, are more on the employer and private and, and individual side. So for example, uh, teleworking. I think that the pandemic has shown the benefits and the drawbacks of telework. And a lot of organizations, I, I hope, will find that they don't need their employees to be uh, in an office at their desks uh, nine to five, five days a week. Uh, there are more flexible arrangements that, that work that maybe will allow people to have uh, better work-life balance and also be more productive. At the same time, we've also seen that there, there is a benefit to having that human connection and interaction. And so maybe we see more uh, hybrid approaches, for example, where you would go in two or three days a week and then you work from home two or three days a week. Uh, I think that trying to have those sort of accommodative structures could, could 
be really beneficial for the economy and for for individuals long term. I think on the government side, it shows some areas where we need to be making more investments. So uh, rural broadband, making sure that everyone has access to quality internet. It's been a huge problem because uh, lower income uh, and rural kids, when we've been doing um, remote education, have been falling behind their peers because they don't have the same connectivity that their uh, richer classmates have access to. Uh, I think that we see our, our benefit system needs to be modernized. Our unemployment system needs to be more adaptive so we can uh, give people benefits when they need them, uh, respond to changes in the economy and benefit levels, things like that. Uh, and then I think we also want to make sure that we are making uh, other public investments that will serve us for the long term in education and infrastructure uh, that will allow us to, to deal with similar problems more in the future. Uh, oh, and I think the last thing I would say is scientific research. We've, we've really seen uh, the marvel of scientific research uh, and what can be done in how quickly we develop this vaccine. I mean, this, this virus did not exist a year ago and already there, there's a vaccine for it. And now we're just focused on distribution. And so thinking about how we can apply the public-private partnership between government and the private sector that brought us this technology, if we can adapt that and scale it to tackle other challenges like climate change and cancer and all the other uh, well challenges that our, our country is facing, I think that would, would help us tremendously in the long term. Earlier this year, PPI published a piece by Robert Litton titled Fixing the American Dream Machine. One conversation that's come from this current situation is the sort of inequality that exists in America because it's a country that's been founded on this principle of the American dream. If you work hard, you can be successful. Whereas in the last few months, we've seen how those who are the average worker, let's say, have suffered or faced hardships whereas those who are right at the top have made billions from continuing their success so there's clearly those issues that exist there how has the american dream been broken and how can we begin to repair the damage that's been done one line that uh, uh president-elect biden has said throughout his career that i i look a lot towards is uh don't tell me uh, what you value, show me your budget, and I'll tell you what I what you value. Uh, our budgets are a reflection of our priorities as a nation, and I think that there is a lot that can be done through uh, fiscal policy to create a more just society uh, and and right some of those inequities. So, for example, uh, in PPI's budget blueprint, uh, not only did we uh, you know. Make, make our benefits structure fairer and make these critical public investments, we also tackled some of the inequities in our tax code. Uh, right now in the US, if you, on income that you earn through your own labor, you can pay uh, like a third of your income in taxes, but you can inherit 20 million, up to $20 million from your parents uh, completely tax-free. And so we think that it's, it's fundamentally wrong that, uh, it's, it's easier to get ahead by winning the birth lottery than by putting in uh, hard work and, and trying to contribute to society. And so adjusting our tax code to reward work over wealth, um, uh, having a more progressive tax structure on top of making investments in education and infrastructure and scientific research to ensure that everyone has uh, those same opportunities to succeed, uh, we think is is 
would, would go a long way towards revitalizing the American dream for, for so many who don't have access because of uh, just where they started in life. Do you think that some of the economic political issues that emerge are, are partly due to the way that political figures will create this misleading narrative? So when it comes to the American dream, we see the way that they'll, say, blame international trade or they'll blame immigration for the problems that emerge rather than accepting their own failures. Do you think that plays into it that when you're looking at economic problems and organizations like the one that you work for come at it from looking at potential solutions, whereas politicians will often look at it as how can I avoid getting any blame for what I'm doing here? Yeah, that's a huge problem. I think we saw it particularly with the rise of, uh, of Donald Trump here in the US, you know, blaming uh, immigration, free trade for for problems that are caused by uh, just automation and, and technology. And I say problems, that's not even the right way to put it, because uh, if you look at if you look at some of the free trade agreements that we had in the 90s and 2000s, uh, they really delivered broad economic benefits for both the U.S. and its trading partners. You know, most people gained. The problem is that there were particular uh, narrow parts of the economy and the country that really did struggle um, and were left behind. You know, th- there are more f- winners in free trade than losers, but there are certainly some losers. And uh, rather than try to put in place the, the right safety net to uh, protect them and help them adapt to the new economy, uh, policymakers just sort of left them to fend for themselves. And that's certainly a problem. But the idea that um, that immigrants were taking all their jobs, or that uh, you know the, these trade agreements were the were the reason. We hear obviously about this approach, and this is always going to be an issue of politics, where politicians are focused on their own sort of success and their own sort of re-election. Is there a, a, a case to be made here that the for economic issues in particular, that there should be some sort of setup where these are in a way, taken out of the hands of those who are focused on maybe their re-election, and it goes into the hands of experts. I think it has to be a partnership. Uh, I we we see we saw, and I think I think Hillary Clinton's campaign is is maybe a, an instructive way to look at this. Uh, she had a lot of really great detailed technocratic policy plans uh, that that would have addressed a lot of problems facing the country, but. Ultimately, you know, we, we are a democracy, and uh, if well, close to a democracy. Obviously, we have some some, uh, especially in the U.S., we have some institutional uh, barriers, but we we strive to be a democracy. And uh, if the experts come up with this great economic system, and half the country hates it, or more than half the country hates it, uh, that's a problem. If if the economists come up with uh, a very efficient system uh, that's supposed to make people's lives better and they don't feel that their lives are improved, that's a failure. And so I think it really does need to be a partnership between the experts designing the systems and the politicians being able to uh, convey to people why they benefit and relay their concerns to the experts. Because you know, in, in, we in Washington, D.C. don't have all the answers. We have a lot of data to work with. Uh, but there is still uh, something irreplaceable about talking to people on the ground and finding out about the real issues. Uh, I think a great example of this is unemployment insurance. Uh, 
the unemployment insurance uh, increase that was passed in the CARES Act, you look at all the data, is it was exactly what the economy needed, you know, way more beneficial than the stimulus checks, uh, targeted to the people who needed it most, who were going to sm- be most likely to spend it. Uh, great policy solution designed by the experts. We found on the ground was because uh, our unemployment systems were not modernized and able to handle the crush here, people were waiting two or three months to get their benefits that they were entitled to while uh, you know, these stimulus checks, which were, were not as well designed, but because they were administered by the IRS, went out way more effectively, uh, efficiently. And so people on the ground felt that the stimulus checks uh, were more beneficial, at least in the early days of the crisis. And so I really think that, that there is an element of that political accountability that helps us as the experts do our jobs even better. We're in a position right now which is uh, unique to, to every four years or potentially every eight years where there is going to be a change in administration, whether Republicans like it or not, it's coming down the, the line and Joe Biden will be inaugurated on the uh, 20th of January 2021. What would you like to see changed between this administration in regards to the type of approach that they take fiscally to policy? I think in a lot of ways, he just kind of has to do the opposite of what Donald Trump did. Uh, the, the Trump administration uh, inherited a booming economy from President Obama, and when unemployment got below 4%, uh, they enacted a giant uh, $2 trillion tax cut and added it entirely to the deficit at the literally the peak of the last business cycle, when it was least beneficial. And then we got to uh, the, the crisis, and, and I'll give Trump, the Trump administration some credit for, for, for uh, supporting the aggressive stimulus in March, but then uh, they tried to claw it back over the summer. They cut back stimulus and support uh, when the economy was still very vulnerable. Uh, they, they helped kill the deal uh, that was, was potentially budding um, between House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin in September, uh, and they got very penny-pinchy uh, in the middle of a crisis. And so uh, they, they blew up our budget at, at the wrong time and uh, got tight-fisted at the wrong uh. And so what we saw with the Trump administration was that uh, they increased stimulus at the time when it was least needed, and they drew it back at the time when it was most needed. And so I would just like to see the Biden administration, uh, when we're in, in this crisis, not penny-pinch, you know, not not uh, just you know spray like a fire hose, but I think that there is uh, strong justification for doing aggressive stimulus now. Uh, better to to overshoot rather than undershoot with interest rates so low, uh, and do that while we're in while we're uh, in the crisis. And then, as we're recovering, don't pass a two trillion dollar tax cut. Repeal the Trump tax cuts and start working to uh, address those those structural deficits when we actually have the the breathing room to do it. Finally, where can people find out more about the work of the Progressive Policy Institute, get involved in the organization, read more about what you're up to, and what have you got coming down the line in the next few months? Sure. So uh, to find out more about us, you can go to progressivepolicy.org. And I think most of our work in the next couple months will be focused on uh, trying to help the incoming Biden administration uh, offering policy proposals for things they can do in the in the short term to support the economy during the recession, uh, and try to get some some of those uh, stimulative policies 
uh, out the door and, and in a way that could actually pass Congress so that we can give the American people the support that they need. Um, and then, you know, we'll also be trying to be supportive where we can for uh, the public investment elements of his agenda, you know, tackling climate change, rebuilding our infrastructure, uh, improving uh, pro-family policies like the child tax credit. Uh, though these are all areas where we want to a be able to support the administration's work. Ben Ritz, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks. Thanks again for having me. That was Ben Ritz, the director of the Progressive Policy Institute's Center for Funding America's Future. You can find out more about him on Twitter at BudgetBen, the Progressive Policy Institute at PPI, or progressivepolicy.org. That's all for today's episode. What did you think about that interview? Let me know on Twitter at Edward T. Hardy. If you enjoyed this podcast, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe or recommend this podcast by submitting a review online and sharing it with friends and family. Thank you to this month's supporters on Patreon, Carolyn, Colin, Janet, Jesse, Merrily, and Nikki, who helped make this show even better. Until next time, goodbye.